0: The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that gives you the power of beautiful design. So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. To start your free trial,
1: visit squarespace.com guardian. Hello and welcome to the books podcast with me, Claire Armitstead. This week, we're looking at three writers with a particularly strong sense of place. Alexandra Harris leads us out into an English graveyard to witness how weather can change the way we write about the world. Nobel Prize-winning Orhan Pamuk tells the story of Istanbul through a traditional yoghurt drink. But we start with Mahesh Rao, who joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, 1.2 Billion. Although he was born in Kenya and has spent most of his adulthood in the UK, his new short story collection is set in 13 states of India. He began by reading from one of the stories, The Agony of Leaves, in which a father-in-law catches sight of his son's wife.
0: A few nights ago, I lay in bed listening to that damn drip. I thought a slow count during the interval between each drop would send me to sleep. But it only made me more restless. I found myself becoming anxious if the drop did not arrive on time. So I got up to go to the bathroom. In the corridor, I could see a rectangle of light coming from their room. I walked to the edge of the door. In the gap between the hinges, I saw what Vikram hides from the world. He was asleep on the bedspread. His shirt still tucked into his trousers, the sound of his snores, rasping and angry. Mira was sitting up on her side, her head leaning back against the wall. There was a book open in her lap, but her eyes were closed. Her plait hung down one side, stopping at the place where the buttons on her nightie began. This was not a woman asleep. This was a woman in suspense. I have been a husband. I know that there are secrets from the world, other lives in the darkness. But Mira is an exceptional woman and does not deserve to be treated in this shabby way. Look at you, Vikram, I thought. Look at this tip-top man. A man who comes home too drunk even to talk to the woman who has spent the day sitting on the veranda, wondering what her life would have been like in a place far away from this wilderness. Mira's head did not nod or drop as I watched. That is how I know she was awake. I think she sensed my presence and yet she did not move she left the door ajar and the light on for me, in defiance of her husband's sour breaths. I withdrew. In the bathroom I looked at my face, sitting solidly above my two big pyjamas. A man my age must be allowed to have a last frolic in his head. Allow me Mira, I said to myself. Whom does it hurt? It's not as if anything will actually happen.
1: That is a an episode in from the Agony of Leaves, which is the third story of thirteen in this collection, um, one point two billion. Um, it's a father-in-law um, looking at his daughter, falling in love with his daughter-in-law. It's a it's a really a tragic little chamber opera in a way. That's right, yes. Um, Where is it set? And one of the things you've done in this collection, and and it's hinted at uh, in the title 1.2 billion, is actually, you're to some extent trying to sum up the whole of India. What does this say about India?
0: Um, Well, this particular story is set in the Nilgiri Hills, which is um, a tea-growing region in the southern state of uh, Tamil Nadu um uh I, I think this story uh, the setting is very uh key uh, because it's set in a remote uh, tier state. it's about a man's isolation um it's about um class in many ways he's a man whose son is upwardly mobile and he finds himself beached in this in this lonely house with his daughter-in-law and his son um and he eventually falls in love with his daughter-in-law so um the setting is key to this this story, but I, I think the setting is key t- to all of them. Um, when I started the collection, the only thing I really wanted to do was make each story very different. That was my um, my note to myself. But as I as I continued writing, I found that necessarily each story uh, began to unfold in a different part of India, and I think that's that's a mark of the diversity that, that there is there, that if you're trying to reflect a multiplicity of voices and stories, you find yourself traveling in your head all over the country. And so, um, so the first few stories, there wasn't really a plan. I just, I just found that I was um, locating my stories all over the place. But then later it became a little bit more self-conscious and then I found myself trying to, to focus on states where I thought there are interesting stories there. Um, I must try and, and, and um, peg one of them for the collection.
1: You're from Mysore, which in your first novel you describe as, as India's second cleanest city and the home of many talented snooker players. <laughs> <laughs> I, I,
0: I think that's apparently true. Um, after a while, you sort of forget what you've made up and what you've sort of heard. But it is, it is it was India's second cleanest city when I wrote it. I'm told now it's India's first cleanest city, so the cleanest now.
1: <laughs> so you're, uh, to what extent are you defined by being from Mysore?
0: Well... I'm, I'm from Mysore in the sense that I live there now, but um, I, I, I've never lived in India until about six years ago, so I spent most of my life um, in the UK, and I moved to India about six years ago, and I, I feel that I'm from there now, but I'm also um, an outsider, so, so it's, it's an interesting perspective with which to, to approach your writing. You, you sort of feel that you are on the margins.
1: You grew up in England. Tell tell us how you how this came about.
0: Um, I I really wanted to write, and I and the first story that that was in my head was set in India. You know, it wasn't set in Mysore particularly, but it was set in India. So I moved to India in order to write that novel, and and the city which I chose, Mysore, it it kind of got under my skin. You know, I I initially set the novel in a fictional place. And, and you know, uh, I, I thought it was something that had sprung from my imagination but actually what had happened was that the city had insinuated itself into my writing and this place that I was congratulating myself on that I had created it was actually just a depiction of what was around me.
1: So here you are writing 13 stories set in 13 different regions of India where yeah. you have only been for six years. Is this not a bit presumptuous?
0: um i don 't think so i mean i'm um, i mean my parents are Indian. I have been uh going to India since I was two- pro- probably every year um I feel that um I was able to tell these stories i mean um it- it'll be for others to judge uh whether they 've been told accurately or uh whether they feel that uh, there has been any level of presumption there but i'm confident that uh you know, these are the stories that I've been seeing and hearing all around me. Um, not just over the last six years, but, but you know, uh, stories that have percolated that down through family history, through um, other friends, um, and through everything that I've read. Um, I, I think everything that we read becomes a big part of our own experience, even though it's not necessarily a lived experience.
1: One of the themes that runs through all these stories is... There is, they all have a sort of underlying violence, that they, whether it's a violence of sexual relationships or, or in particularly literal terms, yeah. bodies buried under the ground. There is a violent history on which these societies are built.
0: Sure. Um, and there is a violent history and there is a continuing um, aggression, I think, in the way that people have to negotiate their space. I mean, this is, this is a crowded country. This, there is huge pressure on land. Um, it's a place where law and order doesn't function uh, in the way that you would expect it to, um, for lots and lots of people. Um, there, is, there is always an aggression. I think there is a latent aggression. That, uh, power manifests itself in very violent ways uh, in India. And um, I, I wanted to bring that to the fore in a lot of the stories, um, sometimes as metaphor and sometimes, as you say, literal violence.
1: We've made it all sound... I have made it all sound rather grim. And actually, it's very funny. And you're all constantly undercutting with comedy, as in the the, the yoga centre story in which a a rich American dies and the whole thing of people getting away with it becomes very comic. Yeah. How have you managed to keep your sense of humour through this grim material? Um,
0: But it is funny. I mean, I think... uh I mean, satire is sometimes quite hard in India because some of the things that happened are so absurd and and so ridiculous, um, usually involving politicians or, or people um, in power who have this blustery sense of, of their own importance that you can't help but laugh. You know, um, it's it, I think it, it comes also with having a little bit of an outsider's perspective, not being too caught up in the um, the power structures or, or having too much invested in those power structures myself. So um, there are constantly very, very funny things that that happen, and I think you've got to thread them into uh, the reality of these stories, because that's, that's what life is like there.
1: It comes with, um, th- this book, it comes garlanded with praise from, from, I mean, amazing citations you've got from Siddhartha deb Mizu Wahid, Jeet Tayil Carmila Shamsi. How did ordinary Indians take this book? Has it been published? There?
0: It, it doesn't come out till the 25th of October. Have
1: you had any sort of advance? Re-
0: Not yet. I mean, I, um, I, I, I am nervous about it because, you know, um, my novel covered uh, only Mysore. It's, it's, it's a small city in the south of India. So perhaps there wouldn't be that sense of ownership or a sense of connection to the, that novel in a way that some people might feel to a book that has 13 stories that, that go across India, you know, and, and I think Indians, we are, we are quite territorial as well. We want to know, what are you saying about my city or my state? But I've, I've arrived at a position where I say we when I mean India, and I say we when I mean Britain. But in fairness, I'm equally rude about both countries. So, uh, so I, I, think, I think that's okay.
1: Mahesh Rao and $1.2 billion is published by Daunt Books. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you've got many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design so you can do more than create a website. You can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. Orhan Pamuk is no stranger to telling the story of his country, Turkey, through the busy lives of his characters. His most recent novel, A Strangeness in My Mind, is a sprawling love letter to Istanbul. It has at its centre Mevlut, a street vendor who trades in Boza, the emblematic Turkish drink of fermented wheat. At a Guardian Live event, Pamuk joined Mark Lawson, And started by explaining how boza became a useful way into the story he wanted to tell.
2: It was not the boza in my mind that I wanted to write about. Uh, I wanted to write about a street vendor, so that I have an access and see the change in Istanbul. Um, history of Istanbul but not the big history but daily life history of Istanbul um, um, seen through the eyes of a low-class person who immigrated to town in in, in 1970 when he was uh, 12 years old. Mevlut my character is only five years younger than me so I can identify with him so uh, the idea for this book was to write a sort of an epic of the city seen through the eyes of a local lower class person um, who is a street vendor, also does many other jobs such as selling rice, cooked rice in the street, um, caring for tables in a restaurant, um, and many, many other things. Um, He tries to make ends meet. And also we see the change in the whole town, not the big uh, history, capital letters, but a small, petty kitchen history, street history of this town seen through his eyes. And the, the Wordsworth quote from the Prolude, I had melancholy thoughts, a strangeness in my mind, a feeling that I was not for that hour, nor for that place. But you said you, you were going to use this title for an earlier book. Which, which book? No, no, no. Oh, no, you no, just had I, it. I like, um, I had... I'd love to write a book with a strangeness in my mind or something like in the title. But then one day I come across Wordsworth poetry. My character Mevlut shares with Wordsworth, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that as he walks in the streets of Istanbul, his mind works better when he walks. Also, I share the, um, um romantic poetry's interest in, uh, in imagination in the uniqueness and definitive strength of one person's singular imagination to define that person. My character, although he is a poor street vendor and when, I hope when you're in the middle of the book, you don't look at him as a poor street vendor, you look at him as a um, just a human being. In fact, a constructed character. We not only see the, Uh, social realities of Istanbul. We even forget about that. But we see he is following shadows and light, strange movement of the trees when there is no wind, the um, reflections of his ideals on the street walls, the shades, um, the mysterious shapes that appear when his mind is busy with other things the packs of street dogs that has been busy at nights of Istanbul for the last 400 years. So he is, in a way, a character that a romantic poet like Wordsworth may be using, but my point is, again, to balance the social story with imagination. Um, um, I tend to think that this is my most humorous novel because in the end, I wanted this book to be funny because it's about hard realities. You talked about it as an epic novel, and it, it's almost 600 pages long, um, you, which again is um, uh, uh, an older tradition. You put at the end the writing date, 2008-2014, uh, six years. So keeping the structure and composition of a book on this scale... Do you have charts and family trees? I have that? We have at the beginning yeah. of the novel a family tree. This is a long epic novel and human imagination, as we all know, is limited. You cannot preconceive a whole 600 page novel like that. It's like thinking of, an, uh, writing, thinking of a tree with all the leaves. Writing a novel is perhaps like imagining a tree. You cannot think of all the, uh, the whole body. You think of the trunk, you think of some of, the, uh, some of the branches, you think of some of the leaves. Then you start an epic is very similar to a fresco. You start from a corner, you go and write for one year various corners, then you continue with another. Then you change the place of the trunk, you, you reinvent the story. The book gets longer and longer, your beloved <laughs> ones are saying, what are you doing there? And you continue and, and try to clarify, right? and clarify, edit out and write. That's how I've been working for 40 years, by the way.
1: That was Orhan Pamuk speaking with Mark Lawson at a Guardian live event. You can listen to the whole session or find out more about future events at www.theguardian.com slash membership. But now we go outside, to St Pancras Cemetery no less, a haven of calm nestled beside the Eurostar terminal at London's St Pancras Station, which has a wealth of literary connections. It is home to the hardy tree, a sturdy ash around the trunk of which the novelist Thomas Hardy stacked centuries of gravestones. It's also the final resting place of the writer and campaigner Mary Wollstonecraft. Her daughter Mary, creator of Frankenstein, is said to have come here to court her future husband Percy Bysshe Shelley beside her mother's grave. in the bright autumn sunshine and at least that's what it looks like to me and a sort of lovely cool breeze in the old St Pancras churchyard and to me this is a perfect autumn day and autumn is one of my favourite seasons
3: Tell me how it would have been seen in the past. Well, this is it. I wanted to know what an autumn day looks like in 1400 or 1750. And it's so difficult to find out what people thought about how autumn looks before landscape painting comes and shows us, um, you know, the mellow hues of the tinted landscape what does it look like before we're thinking of Claude and, and, and Keats so I've been reading my way through the, the medieval advice books that tell you what it should be like in autumn what you must eat in order to counter the particular autumn weathers um, the, the little almanacs which draw pictures of different kinds of weather to expect if you hear the thunder in September, I've been thinking um, about or that emergence of autumn poetry after Thompson's The Seasons um, but that's in the 18th century you know it's actually a very recent phenomenon that we should be so fascinated by dead leaves. If we go right back to
1: say um, Roman Britain, Mm.
3: they didn't really see four seasons at all. The classical world does, so the classical world has has four seasons Um, but then it seems that the Anglo-Saxons were thinking very much in terms of a binary year with light and dark, summer and winter and that's the kind of northern model that comes to us from the Germanic countries Um, but as that melds together Together with Latinate influence you start to get people thinking about a more sort of gradual progressive way through the year.
1: Your subtitle is Writers and Artists Under English Skies so it's very much a writerly impression. You're arguing that actually they are creating the way we see, there is no such thing as an objective
3: autumn day that's it. I Looking around now, my mind is full of the words of, of Shelley and Keats and everybody has their reservoir of things that they've looked at and seen. Um, it doesn't have to be even you know, particularly sort of poetic. Um, you know, the f- films, they, they provide our imagery, I think, for everything we see around us and so we are partly creating the world around us and though the thermometer reads the same to everyone who looks at it, actually, uh, the temperature will feel slightly different. The red- will be experienced as a drizzle by one person, as a great Victorian downpour by another. and I just think those shifts are so creative in us. Since we're sitting in the old St Pancras
1: churchyard, which does have connections with Shelley because Mary Wollstonecraft is buried here, not least, um, there's a fascinating thing that a story you tell about um, that summer when Mary Shelley created Frankenstein and the weather and how different people saw the weather. That particular summer, Wordsworth saw it as incredibly dull
3: and dank and dispiriting, but she saw something very different. This is 1816. There'd been the enormous eruption of Tambora volcano the year before um, and the atmosphere was laden with volcanic particles that were blocking out the sunlight this was the year without a summer and yes people experienced it differently so um, the Shelleys and Byron are together on Lake Geneva and they're looking out at these sublime thunderstorms Um, Mary Shelley is enraptured by this, terrified but also sees this fearsome energy in it Um, but back in England and there's Jane Austen, say, who's looking out at drowned fields thinking, you know, this is people's livelihoods gone, and this is dreary and depressing. And some people may think this is sublime, but I think this is disastrous. Um, so I think people's sensibilities are so easily readable in these moments of, of, of weather crisis.
1: Moving into the 20th century, one of your areas of expertise is Virginia Woolf. And you talk very interestingly about how attuned she was to how people wrote about the weather and
3: particularly with reference to Orlando. Yes, I can't help myself writing about Wolf because I think she's such an extraordinary reader of our weathers. In Orlando, she takes her heroine hero through 350 years by changing the weather of each each century. And it seems to her that the Enlightenment does actually look clear and bright because of the, the kinds of culture that are coming out of it, the kind of artistic ideals. Um, you know, people are wearing brocade floral dresses. That's the ideal fashion. And it projects a certain idea of of the weather Um, and she thinks that the the Victorian world looks to her, uh, dark and damp and dreary and ivy is growing in profusion and the vegetables are all coming up. Um, There's a sense that because the Victorians are very interested in forms of melancholy and mourning um, because their homes are darkly panelled, they value privacy and um, enclosed indoor spaces all of that has an effect on the way we think their weather was. And so I've been trying to um, determine what the actual meteorological record was for the the 19th century compare it and say how far is what's happening out of the window actually reported in the kinds of literature and art that come out of that moment Um, and the two are just constantly playing off each other in a way so complex I think we haven't quite got to before. This
1: is a a sort of huge book, thick heavy book and it represents years of, of scholarship It's a curious book to write at this time because it's very, very invested in literature. Your touchstones aren't sort of the things that are happening to the weather now. They're they're very much about the things that the writerly imagination has communicated in ages past.
3: Partly I wanted to work out a sort of shape for a history of of literature as I've been reading it and and I thought that one of the best ways to do that is to lie down on the grass with one writer after the next and watch the sky and see it changing. Um, So that was to me a sort of personal obsession but there's also an element here of my trying to work out what I think about Climate change. There's a way in which I think um, the statistics, the cause to action can be a little bit alienating. Um, I can't always feel the urgency of it in my day to day life. But when I read, for example, the the diaries of Ralph Jocelyn writing in 1647 about a a glimmer of sunlight, there's something very real and immediate about that. It makes me, it brings home to me um, what has changed across time, our position now, that kind of long view for me gives such weight to our current preoccupations. Um, and so it's helped me certainly to really think about where we're going now. On the last night of the 18th century, the heroine of Virginia Woolf's Orlando leans out from her London window. In the cool, clear air, she surveys the smooth domes and magnificent vistas of the city. All is light, order, and serenity. But then, as she watches, a rapid gloom starts to close in. Within moments, there comes a dramatic meteorological alteration. A turbulent welter of cloud covered the city. All was darkness, all was doubt, all was confusion. The 18th century was over, the 19th century had begun this is how time passes in Wolfe's historical pageant Uh, the atmosphere of English life in different eras is established through these changes in the air life changes in accordance with the newly Victorian weather so skirts are worn to the ground and tablecloths follow suit ivy grows in profusion in the muffled gloom evasions and concealments are bred almost as quickly as children immediately we start thinking of wood paneled rooms yards of black taffeta Why does the 19th century, seen through the telescope of time, look so very damp? Well, parts of it were verifiably wet. Springs and autumns in the 1830s and 40s were characterised by high rainfall, as were the summers of the 1870s when crops rotted in the fields. There was also the man-made atmosphere to contend with. Industrial smoke generated its own pervasive black clouds. But Victorian England also saw plenty of fine weather and periods of drought. Measurable quantities of rainfall and cloud cover were not really, I think, Wolf's point. Her method in Orlando has much more to do with a sense that, as cultural preoccupations change, we find affinities with different conditions. Weathers gather associations, and in a constant exchange of subject and object, these associations shape our experience of weather. Five years ago, I spent a summer reading Anglo-Saxon poetry and chronicles. The fascination with frost seemed to run so deep that even the language was frozen into its forms. Winter kiareg, winter bitter, winter yewortha. Where was the sun? I kept reading, waiting for the spring. It came in the lyric poems of the 13th century. Lenten is come with love to town, they sing. The long hold of ice is over. April is where the medieval stories begin. I knew then that I was going to have to read on through the 15th century and the 18th century, watching to see whether the air was so very clear, and on through the gathering clouds towards Wyndham Lewis's 1914 proposal of a new climate for modern life. The thermometer may be the same whoever reads it, but our experience of weather is more than statistical. It's made up of personal moods and memories. An evening sky is full of other evenings. A mist may be given its identity by a line from a song or a half-remembered film. The weather is made for us partly by writers and artists who have set down permanently their response to some fleeting effect. The subject I was chasing through libraries and over windy hills was not the weather itself, I realized, but the weather as it is daily recreated in the human imagination. That was Alexandra
1: Harris reading from her book, Weatherland, Writers and Artists Under English Skies. It's published by Thames and Hudson. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Mahesh Rao, Orhan Pamuk and Alexandra Harris. As ever, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave comments on the podcast page. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Or you can email me direct at claire.armitstead at theguardian.com. Next week, we're taking a turn on the spooky side with Audrey Niffnegger for Halloween. Until then, from me, Claire Armistead, and my producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye.